I think one of the things that uh, this has pointed out today is how we're all individual human beings and we all have different experiences. And I, you know, one of the things that I have always throughout my career, I was always sad that I never got a chance to talk to other arrangers. I mean, from the first time that I was in school, you know, that was great to talk to arranging teachers and I learned a tremendous amount from them. But then in my working life, I, I talked to a lot of musicians. I talked to a lot of drummers and bass players and string players, but I, but I would always, you know, be walking out of a studio when John was walking in. And that was the only time, that was the first time we met, I think, when we were walking in and out of a, a studio somewhere. It might've been a Tina Turner record, but, but we never get a chance to talk to each other. So it was with particular uh, happiness that I got when I came to LA and joined ASMAC that I started being able to talk to other arrangers. What fun. And so the one thing that you notice is that we all have different experiences and different things that we like to do and different areas of music that we're happier in or different sounds that we like. And that's what you're seeing here. I mean, that's what you saw in John's swinging arrangement that we heard at the very beginning of, of uh, this uh, wonderful time that we're having here. And then we saw a different kind of swinging attitude in the the derangement that we we just heard. So that's that's the fun of it for me. And what I find is that we live in an increasingly conformist world, um, and that is a real shame uh, that people are expected to write to the to the exact requirements of the genre that they seem to be writing in or the radio format that they're writing for. Um, and why not let things develop and go in a new direction? Um, how else can you get new directions in music? You're not going to allow Miles Davis to go from bebop to modal to uh, funk to whatever. You know, why, how, can you, how can you stop artists from doing that? So, I mean, maybe it requires more trust on the, on the part of the people who have the money and are paying for the art to happen. But uh, I think the only hope for the future is for us all to be allowed to uh, create. Richard, let me, yeah, let me ask you a question. You're 100% right on all counts. Yeah. And as I mentioned at the outset, <laughs> as I mentioned at the outset, uh, both you and John uh, have covered multiple genres. It would be great enough if you just simply mastered one, but to be able to cover many is a second uh, skill set. Mm -hmm. So out of all the people that you've worked with, I'm just going to pick one at random, uh, Ray Charles, okay? Hey. How did you even happen to work with Ray in the first place? And then second... How was the experience? I was working with a fantastic British rock bass player called Phil Spaulding, who was a complete maniac, crazy guy, uh, but also incredibly talented. He's the kind of person who, if you have him playing bass on a session, the feel is just so 
deeply solid and in the pocket. And it sounds like every take that he does sounds like he's in a stadium rock gig. So it's an, it, it's a great guy. So we were writing songs together and it just so happened that Phil was hired for a session in France, uh, in Paris, for a new Ray Charles that, album that was being made. And they were recording the first couple of songs. And he called me from Paris and he said, yeah, Rich, I can't do his accent. I, I would love to be able to, but I won't. Yeah, Rich, uh, this is Giza. Anyway, he said that the producer was said that he was looking for songs. And he had told the producer that we had actually already written three songs for Ray Charles. And I happened to be at the time producing an amazing uh, guy called Michael Ruff, keyboard player, songwriter uh, in Denmark. I was doing an album in Denmark and he called me up and, and I was, I said, well, luckily I'm just finishing the production and I'm leaving in a couple of days. I'll be back in London. And he said, good, I'll be back in London too. And we have to, we have to demo at least three songs. And I said, don't worry about it. We'll do it. Uh, and so I, I got back to London. We immediately went into my studio. Now on the plane back, I had already written two pretty solid ideas for songs and he had written a couple ideas and we put them all together. And, and so that's how that came about. Uh, and then of course, uh, I was also asked to arrange the tunes, uh, for the French producer. And, uh, that was, of course, great fun, and 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 uh, it's always different arranging your own music. I don't know what John would say. That's about true. That, but but uh, when you're arranging your own song, it's very different from arranging somebody else's. And in a way, maybe you have a little less freedom. People would think you have more freedom, but I I I think your ideas about what the song is are pretty solid in your mind. So you say, I'm definitely going to hit it with the, this riff here, and I'm going to whatever. So, um, but anyway, what was really exciting was uh, getting to perform. Once I'd done the arrangements, then Ray did a tour of uh, Europe, and he, he always picked up local uh, big bands to tour with. Uh, he would just take his rhythm section around. Mm -hmm. And so, because I had Banzilla going at the time, uh, which was my big band, the idea, he asked me if I would put that together and give him all the horns and, and conduct because he didn't have an MD and he would usually pick up an MD uh, for the thing. So I got to do that. Uh, and Ray himself was just great. I mean, a lot of people have said he's difficult, but uh, I, I didn't find it. And I especially liked being able to question him about stuff and he gave me a lot of insights into, obviously, his own beautiful, brilliant genius. Uh, but on the first gig, I called up and I said, um, what's the set list? What are you doing? And he said, oh, no, no, he doesn't decide that until the gig. So, <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, well, that's fun. So I got to the gig and then I was standing there. Uh, waiting, and they were passing out parts to the whole band, and I had my guys all out there, and they had his, his rhythm section, who were great guys, and I, I said, well, you know, you're passing out all these parts, where are the scores? And the guy who was passing them out, who was 
about seven feet tall. So there ain't no scores. We don't, we don't have scores. Nope. Nope. <laughs> and apparently his manager refused to allow him to travel with scores because he was afraid that the arrangements would be stolen by somebody else. And I said, well, what, what am I going to do here? I don't have anything. And, and I went to Ray and I said, Ray, there's no scores. What am I going to do? And he said, oh, don't worry, man, you'll get it. <laughs> so, so, so then I, of course, the first gig, I was completely, and, and he, he called the tunes at the rehearsal. And he didn't even call the names of the tunes. He just said, okay, everybody. He sat down at the piano. He said, okay, everybody, here's tonight's show. 43, 220. And he <laughs> called out this list of numbers. I didn't even know what songs they were. So eventually, I mean, I went around to the musicians and looked at their parts and I wrote down the names of the tunes. And of course, I mean, I knew a lot of Ray Charles music, but I didn't know everything. And I certainly didn't know it that in that much detail. So the first gig, I looked like a complete plank. I mean, I must have looked like an idiot. And so, but the just before the gig, the drummer said to me, Rich, he said, everybody goes through this. Here's the thing. Watch Ray's right foot. He said, what? He says, watch right. That's the only place you're going to get the downbeat. <laughs> and he said, if you come down, if you bring your hands down with his right foot, you'll look like you know what you're doing. So I said, nice, okay. So I want, and you know, he, Ray is facing, I guess if you're looking at the stage, he's facing to the right and his right foot is visible. And it was visible to me on my useless podium standing there with the musicians. And uh, that, it became an acting gig for me because I had no idea, you know, what was going on in the arrangements. I remembered some of them, but you know, it's a joke. But so you pulled it off. I, I pulled it off enough that I, not too many people knew that I was lost. So <laughs> by the second gig, at least I knew, I, you know, I had brushed up on the tunes that we had played in the first gig, but that by the second gig, he called about 50% of the same uh, tunes, but then didn't, then all the 50% of it was tunes, some of them I'd never heard of. And uh, so, you know, it was the same sort of scene. So a third gig came and, you know, maybe I knew some more tunes, but it was, so now the fourth gig, this was the big, the big finish here. I was doing, uh, the um now where is it? Glasgow mm -hmm. there's, a big, there's a big auditorium there and it was for the BBC it was going to be broadcast by the BBC so I I at the BBC I had a little guy who was great and he was my I don't know what they called it like musical associate but he was kind of my my uh score slave so when the parts were passed out I had given this guy an extra 25 quid in his hand to take either the lead trumpet part, the piano part, the lead alto part, something from each one of the songs and photocopy it for me while he was passing out the parts. And I said, take a long time to pass out the parts because then you'll have more time to do the photocopying. So he did that. Now, by the night's gig, I had a bunch of parts. They weren't the score, but at least it was something to follow. And I was beautiful. I was fantastic. 
Well, and fans. at the end of the gig, Ray came up to me. He shook my hand. He says, you see, man, I told you you'd get it. <laughs> <laughs> great, great story. I want to ask uh, John a similar question. John, I want to ask you about the Bond films. Okay. Ooh. Now, this was an iconic uh set of scores you know from the you know the theme and all of that uh with the original bond movies uh, beautifully uh done beautifully executed so here you are coming in and you reproduce that sound i'm i'm talking about in addition to the things that you added to it but to fall right in line with that big uh brassy james bond theme that the whole world already knew and was associated with how did you nail it so spot on? I pursued a parallel career, as you, as people may know, as an orchestrator for other composers while I did my own movie scores and always orchestrated my own movie scores as well. So um, I worked with Elmer Bernstein, Mark Isham, Rishi Sakamoto, Eric Serra, um, Julie Stein, as an orchestrator. I was hired to do uh, the Bond film because I worked a lot with Eric Serra, the composer. Basically, we'd just come off a film called Leon, The Professional, it was called in America. A great film with Gary Oldman and Jean Renault, and a terrific score. They hired Eric, really, to take Bond in a new direction. I came in and all I was doing was really orchestrating the music. Immediately it became obvious that the traditional Bond people, because a lot of them have been on every single movie from Dr. No onwards, you know, mm -hmm. um, and they were horrified by the score. I, I can't put it any other way. They, they, they didn't understand it. They didn't know what was going on. They couldn't hear you know, well, where's the James Bond music? Where's the big brass? Where's the... Eric had written a very moody, percussive, string-heavy, you know, moody mm -hmm. score. They were panicking. And basically, I got a phone call on the Friday saying, can you come to Pinewood, where they were dubbing the film, now? And I did. I drove down there, and I, I said to my friend, it's the tank chase. I know it is. Because that mm -hmm. was the high point of uh, Goldeneye, the tank chase. Right, right. And I got to Pinewood, and it was. It was the tank chase. And um, the editor of the film sort of slammed his fist on the table and said, if this goes on the film, my name comes off. <laughs> oh. And then the dubbing editor said, and mine too. And <laughs> What have I walked into? What have I come into? So they basically said, uh, will you do it? And I said, look, you don't need to brief me. I know what you want. I know exactly what you want. Um, I'll do it, but you have to okay it with, with Eric. He hired me. It's his say-so. So the director rang him and said, can he do it? And Eric said, yeah, well, I'm not going to. He may as well, he knows the rest of the score. So um, that was Friday afternoon. I took, took the film away 
I composed it on Saturday. I orchestrated it on Sunday. It was copied on Monday, recorded on Tuesday, dubbed on Wednesday, and the film came out the following Friday. Well, you see, the only way you could move at that pace was years and years and years of being ready from all of that experience. And one well, of the things, I'm sorry. No, 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 I was going to say that because I always composed, and this goes back to something Richard was saying, I, I always composed with orchestration in mind. So I would never just write a piece and go, oh, I wonder what would sound good doing that. Maybe, maybe I should have an oboe there or a, no, maybe a French horn or something. I knew exactly what the orchestration would be. I had three um, orchestrators standing by for the Sunday because I thought, this, you know, it's an eight, eight minute cue. I mean, I forget it. And by the, by the time I'd written it, composed it, I thought, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to orchestrate it, which I did. And it well, didn't take any time. I noticed when I saw that score that you took the trumpets to the outer limits. <laughs> you pushed them right to the brink. Yep, I had Derek Watkins. There it is. There's, there's, the, there's my score. Well, there you go. Well, like I, like I said, you had the original music, but you also uh, saved the you know, original iconic themes wisely. And um, it just really made the picture, in my view, from the well, score standpoint. Yeah. Because it's, it, it was voted the number two scene in Bond films of all time, which was amazing on, on British television, because it is so insane and it's literally one climax after another. Right. You have to be really, really, really careful about how you structure it because, you know, the tank bursts through the walls of, of uh, the prison. That's a big moment. The mm -hmm. tank statue and drives off with the statue that's a, another big moment and then there's another big moment and then it sort of you know everybody falls in the water and that's another big moment so you can't write eight minutes of climax you know it's, it's just right. impossible. <laughs> so you have to structure it so the the structure became using the james bond theme which i was obligated to do obviously not just because I wanted to, but because in Monty Norman's contract, it says it has to be in the film. And it wasn't in the film. And bizarrely enough, M Monty became the singer in my, my jazz group. So what, what I did was I used the James Bond theme at maybe three or four key moments in, in that film, interspersed them with some original composition of mine, and each time they, it came up, I ramped up the ante. So it started out big. It was obviously the Bond theme. It then became bigger. It then became even bigger. And because Derek Watkins was there on trumpet, who played on every Bond film, shoot it into the stratosphere. You oh, know? It, was, it was up there. That, that took a lot of nerve. Oh. <laughs> I had 110 musicians. Right. We nailed the whole thing in three hours. The whole. I didn't know until just now that, that it was written into the contract that that had to be there. Uh, I think uh, your buddy Monty was actually doing the uh, franchise a favor uh, because it should be there. 
just yeah. like with Star Trek, the iconic French horn theme, no matter what the score is, at some point, we have to hear that theme or else it's not Star Trek. So you, you did it. You really nailed that one.
Fantastic. I love that. Now, <laughs> before uh, the trumpet player's name again? Derek Watkins. We lost Watkins. him years ago. Yeah. I well, think you that... had the A-team for sure. One thing I want to mention is about three quarters of the way through, the music stops. I have great appreciation for that because I know that's the, the mark of a seasoned professional who says, yeah, there's going to be explosions for days here. Why write a note? <laughs> and and made, made me start laughing right out loud when it happened because I've been on that that train myself a couple times where it's, uh, yeah, no, don't bother. I've got one just in case. Can I, can I ask one? Please. Sure. Okay. John, now this is a completely mercenary question. I have to ask, because you were using Monty Norman's theme, did you get royalties on this? Yes, interestingly enough, it is credited as Altman Norman. Right, okay. Well, so, the answer is yes. Which I'm, is I'm so glad to hear that. Unusual, but very nice. No, I'm very glad to hear that. And plus, you were. You... I have to say that the Bond people are great. And I've just done work for Hans Zimmer on No Time to Die. Nice. And Hans gave me complete freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. And I conducted all the brass on that. But nice. I had, being, being Hans Zimmer, I had. Uh, it was big. I'd hate to be the guy who had to call out for burgers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say one little thing about Derek Watkins because, you know, I, I just feel so lucky to have worked with him for so many years. The greatest thing about him was not the fact that he was technically a monster. It was not the fact that he could play anything. It was the fact that he had such an amazing desire for the music to sound good that he would never, I mean, he came to my studio all the time and recorded things for me. His, 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 his attitude was, no, it's got to be perfect. And I'd say, but that was really good. He says, no, I'm telling you, it could be better and it's going to be better. And man, it was better. And when he walked into the studio, I'm sure John will agree with this. All the other musicians who were on the session, if, even if it was a 90 piece orchestra, they all raised their game because Derek Watkins was in the room. Bobby Jasinski is asking you, John, um, do you have any advice, guidance for those of us who are composers associated with jazz ensembles or other ensemble setups that may want to get involved in film scoring? How do you get in knowing other musicians in the business? I come from a family of arrangers. So when I listened to music at the age of six and seven, I heard arrangements as they did. I then became a saxophone player and a session player. So I was playing with people like Fleetwood Mac and Nick Drake and all, all kinds of people recording as, as a player. I became Van Morrison's musical director. And then I started all doing takedowns for the BBC and what that was basically was literally, as it says, you listened to a cassette in those days and you wrote down the arrangement that was on the cassette because bands like the Stylistics and people like Don Williams, even Telly Savalas would come to the UK and they wouldn't bring music with them. They would just show up. And 
they were on variety shows which existed then and the variety show would have an orchestra which existed then so not only did you have to take down the arrangements from you know betcha by golly wow by the stylistics you then had to adapt it to the orchestra for the particular program so you had to think on your feet and then going into advertising it was the same thing you know can you do a brass band can you do a string quartet can you do a jazz group can you do a rock and roll can you do a country and western band so you you learned your craft completely across the board and that actually readied you for going into writing for film where you might literally have to completely change from a you know a classical string ensemble to a jazz trio on the spot with the people in, who are in the studio so i mean the only thing i can say is keep working across the board learning a craft and wait for the opportunity because somebody will say can you do i mean my first commercial was can you do a brass band i'd never i'd never written a brass band arrangement in my life i didn't even know what the instruments were i don't know if richard wants to add to that well, well i do want to add to it first of all to say exactly the same experience you had i've had and you learn by doing and one of the things that i find is a little bit unfortunate when i talk to today's young younger musicians and i always sound like an old fart when I say things like this, but I guess I am an old fart. But the thing is, all the people who I talk to who are anywhere from 19 years old to 30 years old, they kind of, they say, how do you get into being a, a film score composer? As if it's like you get into one thing and you, then you become one. It's, it's not like that at all with your career. You have to do professional work. John and I both did tons of professional work, some of which was great fun, and some of which was what they call in England donkey work. My advice to younger musicians is work. Get paid for working. Do things for people. That's the only way to do it. And they will pay for somebody they think is good enough to do X. Now, that may be writing a rhythm chart for somebody. It might be writing out the melody to some song for for a, for a trumpet player. it could be anything it doesn't it could be any range of things but just work and people are expecting i must say the people i talk to a lot of students that i have they expect it to just happen overnight oh it's, it's fine i can just get these little techniques and then i'll be able to do it and all i need is to have this computer program and this software and I can become a film score composer. Well, it just is completely childish to think that. And there's, you know, another thing is to be a great composer or arranger, you need something called a frame of reference. Now, when I was 24 and or 20 years old starting out, I had had the experience of as John had, of listening to a lot of fantastic music. I'm sure when John and I were kids, we knew the music of Sinatra, we knew the music of Ella Fitzgerald, we knew the music of Ellington, we knew all that music already. It was music from 50 years before we were born, but we knew it because we listened to it and we found something interesting to listen more to it. And then we also had the music of our own era, 
you know, we had rock music and we loved that because it was our era. And so we listened to that. And I don't know about John, but I would guess that it was the same thing that you thought, well, wait a minute, I'm not so interested in how Sinatra is different from Stevie Wonder. I'm interested, or The Who, or The Kinks, I'm interested in where they're the same, where they're similar. There's somebody recently said, all delineation of genres, labels, is just laziness. It makes it easier to talk about music. It makes it easier to format radio. But guess what? We're human beings. And we are, as Shakespeare said, human beings of infinite variety. And the minute you start pushing that into the space of one little genre, one little area, you know, this is this is funk, this is soul, this is R&B, this is that. I mean, quite frankly, that is just, it's laziness and it's unmusical and it's inhuman. So you need to be, you need to have the frame of reference and you only get it by listening. But I also say to people, listening actively. Listening passively is for wimps. Listening passively is for people who are not musicians or who don't want to be professional. I know for a fact that when Sylvester or John or I listen to a piece of music, there's some part of your brain that's going, oh yeah, that's that's three French horns. Okay, we're good. And, you know, I've even got my wife who isn't a musician doing that on, the, uh, you know, when we put, turn on the radio, I, I torture people so much by saying, oh, you know, that's the French horn. She said, oh, that's a French horn. She can recognize it. So that's what happens. You begin to recognize sounds and analyze while you're listening. And, and so when you're listening to Dr. John or you're listening to uh, Billy May or you're listening to Ellington or you're listening to, uh, what was that guy, Albert Sperger? When, whatever, your mind is going and, and analyzing what's going on. That's how you become an actual musician rather than somebody who's playing around with it or uh, expecting it all to happen uh, because you've got the latest version of a certain software. Thank you for my rant. <laughs> Richard, got a special question for you. Okay. Um, Conrad Pope once famously said, and I'm paraphrasing, that it takes a special kind of genius to screw up a hundred piece orchestra but you have to really know what you're doing when you have a small ensemble. And basically, you know, we're all in heaven when we have a full orchestra or even a full big band, but you've written some very, uh, really inventive things with small sections. And as you know, one of my very favorites is uh, your work on the original uh, breakout uh, album for Swing Out Sister. So here's my question to you. Uh, when you're working with small ensembles, okay, do you find that it provides you with more freedom and flexibility to do that? Or do you think that uh, it's a case where uh, you're limited to that, so you just have to do the best you can do? Is it? It's a great question. And my answer is that if I want a peanut butter sandwich, I need peanut butter. Okay, so for breakout, the, I could have had pretty much 
you know, anything I wanted brass wise, because because the guy didn't know what he wanted, but he wanted brass. So I said, he said, what do you want? I said, give me four guys and I'll tell you who the four guys are. And, you know, that was it. So I, I didn't want a huge, lugubrious elephant of a sound. I wanted four guys, you know, with John Thurkle on top, you know, and that's what I wanted. And that's why it sounded so great, because it was it, it was what was needed for the track. And uh, I'm sure everyone who is an arranger here will see that you will know that, that that's, that's your ideal thing, is to not it not have a large number of instruments or a small number. It's, it, it's what you need for the gig and what you need to achieve what you want to achieve. And so that I needed something that was agile, that was funky and that was tight. And that's what I got. And, and, and at the same time, if, if I want a bigger, fatter sound, then I, then I might want to have a full big band brass section. I mean, it's definitely choosing the instrumentation for it, but one isn't better than the other. And I've done, I did a track once, which was for percussion ensemble, just because I wanted to do something new. And I wanted a light kind of plunky, plunky little sound. And I, and I had a bass marimba, I had a xylophone vibes and, uh, Celeste. I had some other little, you know, all that. And I did the whole arrangement with that. F have a target, hit the target. That's, that's as much. Got as it. Much. So that one was by design. Great. Definitely. And, and let me also ask you, your work with Paul McCartney. Okay. How did that come into being? Well, that was, that was a great thing. He had heard my arrangement of Grace Jones' Slave to the Rhythm, which was produced by Trevor Horn and Steve Lipson. He liked that and he was working with Trevor Horn just prior to working with me. And he said, uh, hey, you know, this guy, Richard Niles. And Trevor said, yeah, yeah, he's great. Go ahead, use him. So that was charming. And then when I first met him, he had sent me his latest album to listen to, which I did. And I met him at, at MPL, uh, which is his office in uh, Soho Square, I think it is. Anyway, I went in and I met, I met Paul in the, the waiting room, you know, of the, he came down and sat with me on a couch. And one of the first questions he said was, what do you think of my new album? And I said, well, you know, Paul, it sounds like you were experimenting. It certainly doesn't sound like a classic McCartney record. And it sounds like you were experimenting with different styles and different co-songwriters. And some of it works and some of it doesn't. And at that point, I, I just realized what I had just said to Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. at the, but it took, I, I was so relaxed that, you know... <laughs> He puts you at your ease because he's a very relaxed kind of guy. And then at that point, I thought I was dead in the water. And he actually said to me, well, I'm glad you said that because everybody around me, you know, they just tell me everything I do is fantastic. But he said, I know that some of the things didn't work. And, you know, I've missed the whole experience of sitting with John with two guitars looking across at each other and, and, and writing songs. And he said, I was trying to achieve that with guys like Eric Stewart and uh, 
Elvis Costello and all these different writers that he wrote. And he said some of it worked and some of it didn't. And I never really achieved exactly that same feeling. Uh, but it was, you know, it was, a, it was a good thing to do. And so at that point, I realized, oh, I'm so lucky because had he been a difficult person, uh, well, you know, I was warned before I worked with McCartney. They all said, oh, he's completely a uh, control freak. Uh, he's not going to let you do anything. He's very specific about what he wants. And, and, and uh, you're going to have to be really careful about what you do. And man, I got to tell you, it was completely the opposite. He, he just said, what do you think? What do you want to do? Okay, great. And, and I couldn't believe it, but that's the way he was. And I noticed that he wanted to be one of the guys. I mean, uh, you know, I, contrary to what I'd heard about him being the big star, he was just very relaxed and, you know, couldn't have been a nicer person or a more creative person to, to work with. Now, my, my favorite McCartney story is that I, we're working in the studio doing stuff and he said, hey, wait a minute, do, would you guys mind if I just, I have an idea for a song and I'd like to just go and record it. This was in his studio uh, down in the south of England. And so you're not going to tell Paul McCartney that he can't go and record a new song idea. So, you know, we said, sure, go ahead, go. So he went in the studio and I'm telling you within 20 minutes, he picked up a guitar and he said, I'm gonna just play the chords to the song now. And he played it all the way through, no stopping. And then he said, okay, I'm gonna sing the song now. And he sang over his guitar, right, one take. And then he went in and uh, uh, he said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a bass down. And he put the bass down. Then he played, no, I think he played the drums first. Then he played the bass and then he put some piano on it. And he said, okay, that's done. Uh, call Dick Morrissey. I want him to put some sax on it tomorrow. And that was it. And it was perfect. And it was, it just, I mean, okay, the guy's talented. That's all I can say. <laughs> all right. I'm going to ask you the same question a different way that I asked John about your book. Now, your book is more technical. Are you including any of your adventures, anecdotal stories? Oh, yeah. oh yes. My, the, the, there are stories in here, in this book, and there are also stories in this book, which is uh, The Invisible Artist, thank you for the plug, uh, which is my interviews with some just fantastic arrangers from, from 1950 to the present. And I chose that because it's our area of, of music. You know, we, we all kind of were born at that time and that was our pop music. And it was a time of change in pop music. And so there's, there's lots of cool cats in here um, from, you know, uh, Jesse Stone, Dave Bartholomew from the, from the 50s, Jack Nietzsche, H.B. Barnum, Jer uh, Harold Batiste, Arif Martin. This it's a it's a uh, real chance to hear inside the mind of those people. Now at the end of it, I very egotistically did a, a a chapter of my own arrangements. And what I did with each of the arrangers is I I uh, told their kind of life story a bit, but I also analyzed their arrangements and I transcribed them. John Altman, of course, is in the book. He has a chapter by himself, and he deserves one. 
and that that'll be lots of fun for you guys to read and uh, um, unfortunately there's no pictures of him on a bearskin rug but I was hoping I would get that <laughs> for the later edition um, well that and, that book that book Rich it's a very important book because you're right uh, getting inside the head the insight uh, uh, that you gain from the other arrangers can be invaluable. Sometimes you only have to say one thing and uh, it can change your whole perspective uh, on, so. on a particular area. Yes. So no, that's great. One of my teachers at Berkeley said to me, if you get one thing from a, another musician, if you get one bit of insight or one technique, it's worth it. If you, and, and if you buy a record and you learn one lick off the record, if you learn one voicing off that record, it's worth the price of uh, thousands of records. Of course, that's what my Radio Richard podcast is about too. I, I interview interesting people. And a lot of the arrangers that I interviewed in that book, I've, I recorded the interviews at the time and they're all up on the Radio Richard site. So if you wanna hear um, Jimmy Haskell uh, for for three hours talking about his life and his arrangements and his techniques, that's where you hear it. Every single time I've ever been in the studio doing any music, whatever I've written, I'm always surprised to the extent that I think, who wrote this? Man, this is good. Because it sounds so much better than what I thought it was going to be. And even with Sibelius, it sounds so much better. I mean, producers and and, and uh, and directors, and uh, they don't realize how how bad uh, mock-ups are. They don't realize how bad, even though it's good as a useful tool, it, they don't realize that there's, it's like the difference between, you know, going on a date with a block of wood or going on a date with a attractive person, human being. I, I'm not going to put any more detail in there but you get what i'm talking about it's just completely shocking so i start with that i then once i got the thing it's like filling in a jigsaw puzzle you do the first part okay now i know what i want there now i know what i want here i'm going to write that and that's it and that's how it gets done got it of course what i want you to say to uh people who said oh you know you ought to do it on synth first uh, if, if it was a director, I'd say, okay, you've got your script, you've got your cast, you've got your cameraman, you're on the first day of shooting, you say action, and both your leading actors shout. You wouldn't want that, would you? <laughs> and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, synth demos are shouting. That's it. Everything yeah. is the same intensity. Um, everything takes up the same space. There's no room air around what you're listening to. Nothing breathes. And a solo violin occupies the same space as a full brass section. So you're basically hearing shouting. You're, you're hearing your main people shout. And they may be your main people, but they're not actually giving you what you have to have. Good analogy. Well put, and and uh... industry has really changed over the last few years, and the dynamics changed. One thing I was going to say was I learnt my craft. I'm, I'm not sure about Richard, 
but I learned really how to arrange because I ended up with someone who was very, very nice, but was basically a crook who never <laughs> played. So he would ask me to do all these arrangements and then find excuses not to pay me. But what was happening is I was learning how to write. The other thing, because, because the technology has improved in terms of dubbing, music has become another sound effect. And for a lot of directors, it's a sound effect. And that's, that's all it is. It's, oh, we've got music, but we've also got footsteps and we've got explosions and we've got, you know, bird noises and we'll throw everything at the thing. And it almost goes back to what Glenn said about having that moment of silence in, in the music, you know, where, where sometimes you just don't need music. And a director I love working with, Peter Chelsom, when I did Hear My Song, um, there was a dub of a sort of mysterious character looking out of a window and suddenly he releases a dove. And at the dub, the sound editor had put in children in the street and birds chirping and cars going by. And Peter said, what on earth is that? And this, the guy said, well, it's, you know, he said, I just, I want the music to carry this. I don't want a single sound effect. I just <laughs> want through this whole scene and it works absolutely beautifully because the music gives you the mystery and the you know the the, the, the feel of the whole scene and it's the film I won a BAFTA for and I'm not surprised in in a way because music was so important in in that film. I will say that it's a mistake to underestimate the power of melody because the ones that do have it they hook the audience in a way that nothing else can, and those movies and soundtracks tend to survive over time. But uh, you're right, there is a trend right now towards sound design as opposed to a real score. I think there's another point uh, that is interesting to think about. Today, people have been, they've gone through maybe 20 or 30 years of no arts education in their schools. Some of them have it, some of them don't. But but the amount of uh, music that people are exposed to for maybe the last 30 or 40 years is kind of different. And if you listen to pop records today, what passes for melody in, I, I have to say about 95% of them is pentatonic, kind of meandering it's not actual you know a melody mm -hmm. and, and I'm not putting that down that's a style that's a thing but then if the public is used to hearing that and they're also used to hearing uh, synthetic sounds instead of live musicians playing then you're kind of getting into why we're in a little bit of a dicey world because those of us who, I mean, I don't think it's just because we're older, but maybe that's the reason. Those of us who know the power and glory and mystery and beauty and uh, sensual uh, charmingness of real musicians playing together in a human place where there's no click track or even if there is a click track that's the brilliant thing about musicians is they can make it sound like it isn't 
and uh, a great composer can write it so that it doesn't sound like there's a click track. If people aren't used to hearing that, then they don't know it when they hear suddenly something that's all done with a piece of software. And so then where are we? Then, you know, I mean, when I did Breakout, you'll notice that on the, the song Breakout, this is in pop music, the brass is real, but the strings are fake. And I'd written this very nice string arrangement, but I thought it sounded like crap because I had to get a synth guy who made a kind of a halfway po possible string sound with, to do it with his keyboard. And it sounded like crap and they used it and it's fine. But then when after Breakout had been a hit because the record company wasn't willing to spend the money on a string section because the Swing Out Sister were nobody. They were just some young group they'd signed. And if it happened, fine. If not, they'd drop them. The record was number one all over the world. Suddenly mm. they said, on the second time they asked me to arrange other tracks on the album, I said, yeah, I want real strings. And they said, fine, no problem. And, mm -hmm. and, and even the record company people said, man, you're right. It sounds so much better. And of course, the musicians knew that already, but you know, <laughs> the, the business people, even they could tell that it was, you were, you know, it, you we're not in the same place that we were before. So, you know, we, we've all got to deal with where we're at today and people need to be educated to, I mean, I don't think young people today get what I got in school, which was, I had a, a, a class called music appreciation before I even studied music. When I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, I'd go into a room, the teacher would say, hey, this is Bach. Oh, this is uh, Mose Allison. Oh, this is this is the blues. This is Mozart. And he just play stuff. This is Ellington. He just play a lot of stuff and we talk about it and just listen. It was in our ears that we but they don't I don't think they have classes like that anymore. And it's a shame because all they listen to is I mean, I had a guy outside my house who was uh, mowing his lawn. And I and he had headphones in and I said, "What are you listening to?" And he said, "Oh, it's music." I said, no, 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 what are you listening to? And he said, oh, it's just music that's in my ears. And I said, yeah, but what is, who's, who's the artist? And he said, oh, no, no, it's not art, it's music. So, you know, I'm struggling to try to, do you know who is playing the music, playing the music that you're listening to? And this is a, this is a guy of about uh, 17, 18. He said, no, I don't really know. It's just whatever I play. I just turn on a playlist and it plays stuff, you know, yep. and, and that was, that was as much as he knew. And, you know, you listen to radio, how, how many times when I was a radio announcer for the BBC for 20 years, I had to back announce everything. You play the track and then you say, that was John Altman and his orchestra. You know, not today they don't do that. They'll play four or five songs before they say anything at all. And then they'll just say, buy Coke you know, whatever it is. So, so that's the world we live in and that needs to change, you know. And when you have a, a world where people uh, have contest shows about music, suddenly you're not a musician to be respected. You're just some guy who is there to be judged by people who know better. And who are you? You're some little guy who's, you know, it devalues music. So we need to change that world if we can. Can I, can I just quickly jump in with 
the work I've been lucky enough to do with uh, Mark Ronson, who is definitely pro-live music, live musicians. We were doing an end title song for a film. I, I was basically arranging it in the studio with him and his co-composer emailed from New York saying, um, I've just had some ideas for the arrangement. And I thought, right, that's it. That's the end of anything I might think of. And he sent over some synth demos of ideas. Mark put them on. About a minute in, he turned them off and went, what you're writing is much better than this. Let's carry <laughs> on. <laughs> you're right on the money, both of you. And I do believe that the power of music and the power of melody still exists. And I, I predict that anybody that fully exploits it is going to have a breakout hit the likes of which the world hasn't seen in a while. So just because the majority is going a particular way doesn't necessarily mean that's the best way to go. But there will be new ways to skin a cat as long as you're still skinning a cat. There's, there will be new ways to do it. But mm -hmm. it's very difficult to get started today in that there are different outlets. I, I think maybe there's less outlets. Sure. But I mean, for instance, if you're a musician, there are less places where you can get paid to play live music if you're not a big star. So if you're a big star, you can get paid to play. But if you're going to go and play in a bar, the chances are you're going to play for pretty much nothing. And uh, or maybe $50, you know, if you're lucky. So Quite frankly, you know, it's a different world. We got to think of, I mean, it'd be great if live venues opened up because I believe live music is, is a real, real answer to everything because that's the way people get excited. You're sitting that far away from the, the player and you're saying, man, I wish I could play the saxophone like John Altman. I think I'll go get some lessons, you know, that kind of thing. So there we are. The way I got started is not really possible anymore. TV variety, pop records, big commercials. I was lucky I, I joined a band that was a chart-topping band at the time. And that was just luck. You know, I, I happened to join the, the band Hot Chocolate, who were yeah. number one with you. <laughs> literally, the We remember I, them. <laughs> a lot of BBC work in the early days, which took me into... BBC drama and television drama, and then into film drama. The head of music at the BBC, who was a very iconoclastic guy called Ronnie Hazelhurst, who the British amongst us will probably remember. And Ronnie had actually been the trumpet player in my uncle's band. And he took a shine to me. And basically, he threw me everything that the dance band arrangers who made up the bulk of the BBC's arranging department didn't want to touch. So I got all the funk and the reggae and the country and the pop, you know, oh, give it to the young guy, give it to the young guy. So I, I had an incredible education in that respect. Another thing that you said there, which was so important, uh, John, was TV variety. Those types of TV shows where music is actually the feature of it. You yeah. know, in, I was just, I just did a Radio Richard interview with a very successful uh, studio guitarist and, and he was saying in things like The Voice and, and 
all these kinds of contest shows, the contest is the star, not the music. And you never see the musicians playing on stage. Whereas I did a, I did a uh, TV show with him, which was the Michael Ball TV show. Uh, and I did uh, Leo Sayers show when I first started my career. And I did a show for David Essex. And this was variety. They'd have different guest artists on and it would be a live band and you'd see the live band on stage most of the time. And it was, it was a music show and things like the, my favorite show of all time, the Tom Jones show, man. I mean, I don't know if you ever worked on that, John, but but that was just such a great show. They don't have shows like that anymore, and it's really a tragedy. I've told this story before, and I, I'll tell it again briefly because I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. I was once doing a recording session for a group called Boyzone in England who were a boy band, and the executive producer was a certain person whose name I won't mention, but he could be called Cowell. And he said to me, Rich, he was looking out of a window with a great satisfied look on his face. He said, Rich, you know, I, uh, I've got a great new idea that's going to save the music business. I said, really? Well, that's, that's great, Simon. What, what's that? And he said, well, you know, the music business is in bad shape. Record sales are plummeting. They're all going down. And and what's harder and harder to sell records. I've got a way of making money without selling one record. And I said, mm -hmm. wow, that's, that's interesting. Well, what is that? He said, well, have you ever heard of premium phone lines? And I said, no, what's that? He said, well, you know, they're phone lines that when you call into them, you have to pay a lot of money. It's it's like two or three pounds to, to uh, think something like that to, to phone in on these things. So I said, really? Okay. So he said, well, I'm going to have these contest shows where there's lots of co contestants singing and, and playing music and, uh, and doing stuff, but I'm going to have the public vote on it. And so it doesn't matter if any of these artists ever sell a record, I'm going to make a fortune already. And I said, gee, that's really interesting. That's great. He says, yeah, it's going to save the music business. And of course, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic well with that Richard um, I want to wrap things up and I want to start by thanking John Altman Richard Niles our featured guest wonderful musicians good buddies uh, for spending the time and taking the effort to present this to all of us uh, including the handouts that everybody can take away uh, I want to thank our production team, starting with Milton Nelson, who produces all of our online events. Um, I want to thank Glenn Jordan, who's with us like a rock every time, uh, just doing great work. Uh, I want to thank Evita Wagner, behind the scenes, dead on the case all the time. Uh, I want to thank Chuck Fernandez, who's been with us from the very beginning, uh, does an amazing editing job. Liz Finch as well, who uh, did score editing <laughs> for today. Uh, I wanna thank our president, Gail Levant, who works tirelessly all the time uh, to keep everything together. Uh, I wanna thank all of you who have participated around the world and tuned in to join us. 
And I'm Sylvester Rivers. Let's see, we can take it out with uh, something from Richard. Uh, do you want to talk about Free Man in Paris and what we're getting into? The Joni Mitchell song, and it's nothing like the original. That's called arranging. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vanzilla is a thing that Richard does, and he gets people to sing all their favorite songs in all kind of strange ways and beautiful ways, and this is one of them. Uh, this is Joni Mitchell. The song's called Free Man in Paris. Everybody's in over their own game You can't please them all There's always somebody doing you down Do my best and I do good business There's a lot of people asking for my time Trying to get ahead Trying to be a good friend of mine Dealing dreamers, terrible 
Nigel Hitchcock. Somebody please give him a record deal. Thank you.